Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Kelly Worrell. She's the author of Pierced and Embraced, Seven Life-Changing Encounters with the Love of Christ. She'll join us at the bottom of this hour. Well, of course, the big news story here in the Pacific Northwest, at least here in Oregon, is the Eagle Creek wildfire. It has uh, forced hundreds of evacuations, closed miles of Interstate 84 east of Portland, uh, is um, at 32,929 acres as of this morning, and is 0% contained, according to uh, Lieutenant Damon Simmons, who's a spokesman for the Portland Fire and Rescue. Now, he did have some encouraging things to say, in addition to those rather profound numbers. The increase in acreage, uh, acreage rather, uh, the fire had been estimated at 20,000 um, acres as of Tuesday night, is more of a correction than an indication that the fire has grown, Simmons said, uh, during the uh, press conference earlier today, an infrared flight uh, was able to go over the fire, uh, which gave officials more uh, more of an exact number. Well, the Eagle Creek Fire and nearly 1,000 acre uh, Indian Creek Fire have uh, combined, and that, of course, is responsible in part for the larger numbers as well. But Simmons says that that uh, he didn't uh, that didn't make it um, uh, hard to push uh, any direction on Tuesday. He said on Tuesday night, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office uh, said that fire officials are indicating that the fire has slowed way down for now. So that's really good news. And apparently the winds have also slowed. Um, the um, the last new evacuation order was issued early Tuesday afternoon. In addition to the evacuations in Multnomah County, Hood River County, uh, that's closed uh, all uh, forest land for recreational use. About 800 emergency personnel are fighting the Eagle Creek wildfire. Crews have been focusing on containing the fire, improving fire lines and increasing space around the uh, around structures. Uh, the historic Multnomah Falls Lodge, for example, uh, built in 1925, has been uh, threatened by the fire. Uh, but the, uh, the, the structural uh, firefighters have worked to keep that fire away from several structural uh, uh, engines and one of uh, several um, historic uh, landmarks in the area. And so far, they have been protected. Well, the western edge of the uh, fire had not uh, advanced as far as originally thought, Simmons said during the press conference. It is currently about a half mile south of Interstate 4. Uh, the fire destroyed one unused house. It was not um, housing anyone at present in the uh, Warrendale area. Uh, but Simmons said that he didn't have an exact location for outbuildings, and that's any structure that uh, is not a home, also burned uh, in that same area. He also said that he's uh, driven through the gorge, and though he said it's still uh, a dangerous drive at the time, the forest remains intact. And if I can quote him, the gorge still looks like the gorge, he said, it's not a wasteland. So those are encouraging words. What he means by that may be different from those of you who know the area very well, every little nook and cranny, every trail and so on. But it was encouraging to hear uh, the head of the fire department suggests that it's not as devastating as one might imagine, given the, the acreage and what we have all come to know and love. Well, the blaze suspected of being started Saturday evening by a 15-year-old boy playing with, a, with fireworks has forced the shutdown of more than 30 miles of I-84 through the scenic Columbia Gorge between Troutdale and Hood River. Trucks uh, that are heading westbound, they're being uh, diverted to uh, the highway at the Dalles. The freeway is closed because of rocks 
Uh, they say snags and other debris on the road. The Oregon Department of Transportation is going to work with fire, fire officials to determine when to reopen the road, but that's not yet clear. On the Washington side of the gorge, trucks of over 10,000 pounds are uh, prohibited from driving between Washougal and Dallasport at State Route 14 due to the fire. But transportation officials asked all drivers to avoid the area if possible, and that's SR 14. So the effort continues. And Eagle Creek, um, the fire reached uh, the boundary of the uh, Bull Run watershed, but it's not close to any of the infrastructure or the drinking water uh, reservoirs at this point. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Um, the uh, ashes filled the, the hatcheries that forced the early release of some 600,000 salmon in that area. Officials say the release um, on Tuesday well, required them to dump some six months earlier than expected. Oregon's Department of Fish and Wildlife had to evacuate 26 employees at three hatchery facilities in Cascade Locks as a result of the Columbia River Gorge blaze. The Bonneville, Oxbow, and Cascade hatcheries are home to some six million fish. Uh, Bonneville's hatchery is also the home of the Sturgeon Viewing Inter- Interpretive Center. Rather, The state was uh, forced to either release hundreds of thousands of five to six inch hatchery fish now or risk losing them altogether, according to a spokesperson. Tanner Creek, uh, one of the water sources feeding the hatchery facility, was literally engulfed in flames. Uh, without that water, those fish uh, are going to die, they said. Smoke and ash from the uh, wildfires raging across large sections of western Oregon is not something to mess with, the state environmental authorities are saying. Well, some staffers have been able to return to the facility to try to monitor the remaining hatchery stock. Firefighters have used the location as staging areas and uh, a rendezvous spot for more than 140 hiker, hikers rather, who were re- originally stranded by the fire. None of the uh, three hatchery locations has been damaged thus far, but the situation is still very serious. Fishery officials uh, released more than 400,000 Tool Fall Chinook um, that were originally expected to be released in October. Uh, they did that on Monday night. Another um, uh, more than 206,000 Fall Chinook were dumped into the river on Tuesday morning. The red and blue dots um, uh, on the uh, the maps that they have provided indicate where those hatcheries are uh, and the numbers of fish that um, that have been released. While most of our attention is focused on what's happening in that particular file, there's also the Chetco Bar Fire. That surpassed 150,000 acres. Uh, new evacuations have been issued in that area as well. The Chetco Bar Fire uh, burning in south uh, southwest Oregon has surpassed an estimated 150,000 acres, and it's believed to be moving south and east. Thick smoke has prevented uh, the fire teams from getting an exact location of the fire, but they're concerned enough to uh, have uh, issued an expanded round of evacuations uh, to that area in the Illinois Valley uh, southwest of Grants Pass. A level three evacuation order, which means go now, has been issued to all resi- uh, residents on Illinois River Road. Uh, within U.S. Forest Service boundaries just west of the small town of Selma. Additionally, a level one evacuation, which uh, means get ready, has been issued to residents in the Illinois Valley west of U.S. Highway 199 from the Haynes Hill uh, to California state line. Uh, That would apply to residents in the small town of Selma, Kirby, Cave Junction, and O'Brien. Cave Junction is the largest town in that area, and it's home to around 2,000. So these are very small small areas. Well, as I mentioned, the city of Portland officials say wildfires in the Columbia Gorge have encroached the city's Bull Run watershed, but so far haven't reached or harmed the water. 
Uh, nor, they say, has the ash falling throughout the area impacted water quality. For now, they say, nothing has changed or changing about the way water is uh, delivered to customers in the Portland Water Bureau, and water remains safe to drink. Well, despite having entered the watershed, fire is not burning near the reservoir or the water supply infrastructure, officials reported um, late yesterday. Edward Campbell, who's the Portland Water Bureau Resource Protection Director, said the city's um, headwaters facility, where drinking water first enters pipes, is about 18 or 19 miles from the watershed's northern boundary. The city doesn't know exactly how far the fire has advanced or how much of the watershed has burned. But Campbell says that uh, although he is hopeful winds in the gorge will uh, ease, which they have done somewhat earlier today, it's concerning how far it can uh, possibly move. The Bureau would switch to a backup water supply at the Columbia South Shore. Um, there's a well there, a well field, if the headworks had to be evacuated. He said that, sim- that supply rather can meet the city's demands, or rather the city's base demands. So there is a backup plan should that be an, uh, an issue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Well, Oregonians are rightly expressing their shock and horror as they watch a massive wildfire rip across the Columbia Gorge. Douglas Perry, writing for the Oregonian, points out that this isn't the first time it's happened. Uh, The Blaze's path includes Multnomah Falls this time around, Oregon's most popular tourist attraction. Firefighting crews on Tuesday protected the uh, Tudor-style lodge at the bottom of the falls by keeping it wet while flames uh, ate a large a tree nearby, or rather plural, trees. You see fire above and working its way through those areas where those beautiful falls are, and it's pretty heartbreaking, says Lieutenant uh, Damon Simmons, a spokesman for the state fire marshal. He added that it's pretty surreal to see that area on fire. It is surreal and awful, but this isn't the first time the iconic tourist um, draw 25 miles west of Portland had found itself in the path of the flames. Well, on October 9th of 1991, for example, there was a wildfire. It broke out just after midnight on the ridge behind the falls and uh, sharp eastward winds spread it quickly. Firefighters were uh, delivered from another uh, nearby wildfire to battle this new one. An army of 1,400 firefighters from 36 agencies was assembled to battle the fire, the Oregonian reported at the time. And throughout the day, helicopters dumped water uh, from the Columbia River on the blaze. Well, crews covered the Monoma Falls Lodge in fire-retardant foam at the time as uh, embers rained down on the roof and large rocks clattered down from the cliffs above. And as the um, fire pushed toward the ground, the Oregonian wrote, a crew from the Vista Grand Hot Shots uh, of California held the line, putting water on the fire while dodging rocks the size of basketballs. Well, the firefighters ultimately stopped the flames just 10 feet from the wood and stone building, which was built in 1925. The 1991 fire, significantly smaller than the current Eagle Creek fire, covered 1,430 acres. That was pretty steep forest area over six days. The, the uh, Multnomah Falls Lodge opened a week after the blaze was extinguished, but, but rather most of the nearby trails with rock slides continuing remained off limits for quite a while. So putting it into perspective, it's not the first time, probably won't be the last. This one seems to be far more uh, uh, widespread than the uh, previous 1991 fire, but it does give hope that Restoration can follow. Well, in addition to what's happening here, of course, many of the nation's eyes are poised on what's happening with Hurricane Irma. It slammed the Caribbean islands as a Category 5 storm. Puerto Rico braced for its impact as well. Uh, Irma roared into the Caribbean on Wednesday. 
uh, passing over islands of uh, St. Martin and uh, Barbuda with 185 mile an hour winds as the most powerful Atlantic um, hurricane in recorded history, which uh, Florida's governor warned uh, was stronger than the last Category 5 storm. Uh, to hit the U.S. Now, it's important to make a distinction between stronger and bigger. Um, I heard this distinction made earlier. It can be much stronger than previous hurricanes, but it's not as large as what we've seen uh, previously. Uh, the center of the storm was about 65 miles east, southeast of St. Thomas, uh, about 11 a.m. this morning, the hurricane center said. It was uh, heading uh, west-northwest at 18 miles an hour, uh, closing in on U.S. Virgin Islands. And, of course, the concern is what happens in Florida uh, once it makes landfall there. Will it remain a Category 5? And it's really not clear when or if it will hit that area. The storm uh, tore off rooftops and uh, knocked out uh, all electricity on the French islands of St. Martin and St. Bartholomew and uh, some other areas as well in the region. Uh, creating quite a bit of um, a mess there. Puerto Rico declared a state of emergency ahead of the storm. It was a Category 4 at the time. This was on on Monday. But it's expected to make landfall, if not later tonight, sometime tomorrow. Uh, The National Guard has also uh, been activated in the U.S. uh, territory, preparing for the storm to hit uh, either tonight or sometime tomorrow, according to the U.S. National Hurricane Center. Governor Ricardo uh, Rosalon said in a statement that despite the economic challenges Puerto Rico is facing, uh, the approved budget has $15 million for the emergency fund, so they are prepared, at least in part, um, for the damage that's likely to follow. Meanwhile, the strongest Atlantic Ocean hurricane ever recorded uh, may bring significant storm surge um, as it nears Florida. The state's governor warned on Wednesday, saying the hurricane um, Irma is stronger than the last Category 5 storm to hit the state, as the uh, major Broward County announced uh, mandatory evacuations for coastal areas. They began with tourists and then with people who live in the area. Irma is packing 185-mile-an-hour winds. It's located about 20 miles east of St. Thomas, 90 miles east of San Juan, Puerto Rico, about 2 p.m. Eastern time today, the National Hurricane Center said. It was uh, heading west-northwest at 18 miles an hour, passing over the north the northernmost Virgin Islands. This storm is bigger, faster, and stronger than Hurricane Andrew, the Florida governor said. That's Rick Scott at a press conference in uh, Monroe County, where a mandatory evacuation is in effect, and all um, uh, all visitors to the uh, Florida Keys uh, is uh, preceding that of residents. A mandatory evacuation for them begins at 7 p.m. tonight. Uh, Scott activated an additional 900 members of the Florida National Guard uh, to support any preparations for potential impacts from the uh, uh, the storm that's approaching. And by Friday morning, uh, the governor said that 6,000 National Guard members will be uh, reporting for duty across the state. So they have additional people standing by. Irma is uh, forecast to begin impacting the Florida Keys as a devastating hurricane by Saturday, according to the governor. Um, some uh, he warned rather that the storm has the potential to devastate our state. Do not focus on the exact path of this storm, he said. A storm of this size uh, could have effects statewide, and everyone must be prepared. Broward County's mayor Barbara Sharif uh, said on Wednesday that mandatory evacuations had been issued starting at noon on Thursday for all residents east of. Uh, the U.S. Route 1 there, known as the Federal Highway, including all senior citizens um, and uh, others in that area. So they are uh, trying to anticipate what kind of storm is likely to come. Uh, but 
Uh, it's not altogether clear where it will make landfall in Florida. Meanwhile, three small Texas churches damaged by uh, Hurricane uh, Harvey are suing the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, for blocking access to disaster relief funds available to other nonprofit organizations who assist residents devastated by the tropical storm. The Beckett Fund filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Harvest Family Church, Highway, and that's H-I-Way, um, Tabernacle and Rockport First Assemblies of God uh, after the costliest and most devastating natural disaster in U.S. history. The government should come to the aid of all, not leave important parts of the community underwater, said Diane Verm, counsel for the Beckett uh, Fund. Highway Tabernacle serves as a shelter and aid distribution point in Cleveland, Texas, about 50 miles northeast of Houston. FEMA historically has denied disaster relief funds to religious groups, but Beckett argues a recent Supreme Court decision, Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer, rendered FEMA's policy unconstitutional. We'll see where that goes. They just want to be reimbursed or compensated for damage to their facility, as uh, would be the case for uh, other nonprofits who are eligible for that kind of funding. So we'll follow that story to see where ultimately it leads. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Kelly Worrell. She's the author of Pierced and Embraced, Seven Life-Changing Encounters with the Love of Christ. She's taught in the communications department at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago since 1998. She studied communications at Cedarville University, religious education at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and creative writing at Roosevelt University. She and her husband uh, co-authored the critically acclaimed book, 20 Things We Tell Our 20-Something Selves. That was also published by Moody. She blogs at This Odd House, not old, but thisoddhouse.org. And we're going to talk with her as she uh, primarily ministers to women. And she takes a look at seven encounters that women had with Jesus um, that uh, are recorded in the gospel uh, that demonstrate kind of a unique approach that he had for, for women in his ministry. So we're going to get to that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus engaged women differently than he engaged men. Women today long to experience the same sort of life-changing love that Jesus had for his followers some 2,000 years ago, to be completely seen and known and valued. As painful as that process might sometimes be. New book, Pierced and Embraced, Seven Life-Changing Encounters with the Love of Christ. Kelly Worrell, she examines seven encounters that Jesus had with different women in the Gospels to show that his love is still as powerful as he pursues women's hearts today. Born out of her own journey through sorrow and um, and derailed plans uh, in her book, she assures women that um, it's often through a painful, grace-filled jab that God's love is fully revealed. From Mary Magdalene to the woman at the well, she says Christ met women throughout the Bible in their life circumstances and reached into their pain and healed them. Well, blending solid theology, contemporary research, literature, and personal narrative, Pierced and Embraced covers topics relevant to every woman like obedience and healing, forgiveness and freedom, and includes reflection questions at the end of each chapter so that it becomes even more personal and practical. 
Well, Kelly Worrell has uh, taught in the communications department at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago since 1998. She studied communications at Cedarville University, religious education at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and creative writing at Roosevelt University. She and her husband, Peter, co-authored the critically acclaimed book, 20 Things We Tell Our 20-Something Selves, also published by Moody. She blogs at the odd, this odd house, rather, thisoddhouse.org, but she joins us today by phone to talk about her book, Pierced and Embraced, Seven Life-Changing Encounters with the Love of Christ. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is an interesting way to approach the subject of the love of Christ, because I think most of us assume that love is always sort of that warm and fuzzy blanket that just rests on our shoulders Mm. and we immediately feel comforted. Um, But love comes to us in, uh, for one thing, precisely in the way that we need it. But sometimes it can be through challenge and even pain that God expresses his love toward us. Yes, absolutely. And I think... Uh, this book was born out of my own, as you mentioned, my own just desire and need uh, just to rediscover Jesus' love and, and what it was and what it what it meant and, and how I ought to live in that, live loved. Um, and so I kind of began my own quest after I was coming out of a season of, of pain myself. And uh, the book then kind of grew out of that on mm-hmm. my own journey. I like the way you put it, that you are learning and have learned how to live loved. I think that's a struggle for many women to yeah. experience and accept the love of God. We have uh, 15 reasons why <laughs> we're right. the exception, that he doesn't love me because of, you, yeah. you know, fill in the blanks. And yet yeah. we are called to live loved because that's the fact. That's a truth. It is a truth. It is. It's the deepest truth. It's the truth that matters the most, you know, and it's, um, such a key uh, piece of God's nature, that mm-hmm. He is love. And uh, it's completely transformative if we truly understand that and live from a place of, of being loved. And I think as women in particular, we long for that. Mm-hmm. We long to know that we're loved. And, yeah, so looking at these seven women and seeing just the very personal ways that Jesus loved each one of them, uh, has really been powerful for me, and, and I hope it will be for the readers as well. I think so. You mentioned that this is uh, this is God's nature, and I think sometimes we're so focused on our our flaws that we fail to recognize His nature and how He responds to us says more about Him than it does about about us. This is who God is. Yeah, yeah. It's just foundational. He can't He can't not love. You know, He just He just is. He is the epitome of love. And and yet we don't feel it, you know, mm-hmm. and I think especially in those painful times when my husband and I went through, it's about a six-year period of, you know, we call it our Job season. I think many of us have those seasons where it seems that pain seems to multiply, pain after pain. And um, and I remember saying to my husband, as I was struggling with depression and, and grief and loss, you know, doesn't he love me? Like that's that's what I long to know. I, I still I think could could grasp that he was sovereign perhaps and that he was holy. Uh but I was struggling to remember and just know that he is love. Um, and so I, yeah, this book kind of was my quest to rediscover that. Let me ask you a practical question. What difference does it make? What difference has it made for you coming to understand and recognize God's love for you that's born out of his nature, as opposed to questioning that, being uncertain about it, and doubting that you are 
um, a, a, I hate to use the word worthy, but that you um, mm. are a worthy recipient of the love that God lavishes on uh, on his children. Yeah, I think knowing that we are loved brings brings a peace. It brings a confidence. It brings it grows our faith. You know, just being able to trust that even when we can't necessarily see what he's doing or we can't understand his ways, we can know his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives us a certainty in the storm um, to be anchored to that. Uh, it also kind of empowers me in, in ministry and service. Uh, to be able to move confidently in what he's called me to do and to step forward in that. Um, Yeah, I think there's many ways. And I think uh, each of these women, I try to highlight, looking at their story, uh, a particular way in which I think we see Jesus' love affect them. And and you mentioned in the intro, you know, for example, with Mary, mother of Jesus, um, she steps out in obedience, like incredible obedience. When God calls her to do something unimaginable, um, she says, let it be to me, as you have said, I will obey. And I think knowing that we're loved enables us to step out in obedience. And and yet for one of the other women, you know, the woman caught in adultery, for example, his love looks like forgiveness, and he sets her free from her sin. You know, go and sin no more. Um, you know, it's a love that is full of forgiveness. And so with each of these women, it's it's a little bit different, but mm-hmm. I think his love um, is consistent. I love that you include women that you would look to and say, oh, it would be easy for her to be loved. But you also mm-hmm. have those who would be considered unlovely and to see how God extends his love to them, I yeah. think it resonates with all of us. Now, you open the book with a retelling of a Flannery O'Connor story. Uh, talk about the significance of that. First, tell the story and then the significance of it and its connection. Uh, to the the content of the book. Yeah, the Flannery O'Connor story I open with a, a summary retelling of is, is called Greenleaf, and it's a story that I first became acquainted with uh, when I came here to Moody, and it was a part of our curriculum in uh, some of our early freshman writing classes. And uh, the story of Greenleaf, the protagonist in the story, is a woman named Mrs. May, and she's a very proud woman. Uh, she's a widow, and she owns a farm, and she has two sons who live there with her, but they're kind of good for nothing and really do nothing to help her around the farm. And, and she has a, a farm hand called Mr. Greenleaf, and she also looks down on him, and uh, he is, you know, he does his job, but uh, doesn't do anything above and beyond. And and so the story opens with Mrs. May, and she's asleep in her bedroom, and she hears in her dreams, she hears a, a munching sort of sound, and it disturbs her sleep, and she can't discern what it is. And uh, finally she bolts awake, and she realizes that it's a bull. And this bull is chewing on the hedges outside of her window. And uh, Flannery O'Connor makes it very clear just through the way she paints the imagery that this bull is a, a image for Christ, a Christ type. She describes him as having a, a menacing, prickly crown caught in his thorns. And she describes him as a patient God come down to woo Mrs. May. Uh, and so the bull is there, and, and he's wanting her attention. He's wanting to, to speak with her, but she, of course, wants nothing to do with him, and she just wants to get rid of him. And so the entire story is about Mrs. May's uh, conflict with this bull who she's trying to get off of her property, and she tries to pen him up, but he breaks out of there. 
And in the end of the story, uh, as this bull just persistently pursues her throughout the story, she finally orders, at the end of the narrative, she orders Mr. Greenleaf to get his gun, and she drives him out into the pasture, and they're going to shoot the bull once and for all. Uh, but as she watches Mr. Greenleaf follow the bull over the horizon, uh, she sits and waits and she ponders her life and how hard she has worked and uh, how she deserves a rest. And, and, you know, so much of her life is, is in her control and she's in charge and um, this bull is just a nuisance. And she's sitting on the, the fender of her car and she's honked her horn to try to get Mr. Greenleaf to hurry up. And she looks out, and on the horizon, she can see this bull coming at her. And she's kind of in a, just a freezing disbelief, uh, O'Connor describes, and the bull charges. And in the end of the story, in typical Flannery O'Connor fashion, she often uses uh, violence and gore to drive her point home. Uh, the bull ends up goring Mrs. May through the heart with one of his horns, and with his other horn, he wraps her around in an embrace. And so the title of the book, Pierced and Embraced, comes from that imagery of the, the bull and Mrs. May. Uh, but it's, you know, it's reflective of just the nature of the pursuit of Christ, that he sometimes pursues us to the very end of ourselves in that pain, but at the same time wraps us around and draws us close. We're talking this afternoon with Kelly Worrell. She's the author of Pierced and Embraced, Seven Life-Changing Encounters with the Love of Christ. The book is published by Moody. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're talking about the book Pierced and Embraced, Seven Life-Changing Encounters with the Love of Christ. Kelly Worrell is our guest and is the author. Now, as you pointed out, you focus on seven women and their very unique stories of encountering Christ in a way that expresses his love that is unique to them, that meets their specific need. Um, and it, it says something about how God uh, approaches us as individuals. You mentioned earlier Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's, it's kind of easy to understand the love of Jesus for his mother. And, of course, she was Mary. Um, but what about some of these other women? Uh, like the woman with the hemorrhage. She's sort of an unknown uh, character in the story. We don't know her name. We don't know much of her background. Uh, she would uh, perhaps blend into the, the overall crowd. And yet she is mentioned in Scripture and her story is told. She is seen and healed, as your chapter uh, makes reference to her. Talk a little, about, uh, a little bit about the woman with the hemorrhage. We don't, again, we don't know her name or any uh, details about her, but her story is significant. So that it's actually uh, told in two of the Gospel accounts, so both Mark and Luke tell us her story, and in both times, it's actually sandwiched right in the middle of the story of Jairus, and so I think that's pretty significant. I think we're meant to understand these two stories uh, together as one story, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, the, the contrast between who Jairus is, you know, he was a man of some importance, a man of some status, and so on, uh, and like you said, this unnamed woman uh, who would have been shunned by society with her, her bleeding, um, and so we can, we can surmise that she was probably a bit alienated from society and, and so on, and she's been bleeding for 12 years, a very long time she's been dealing with this, and yet Jesus is, you know, on his way to help Jairus, who, you know, it doesn't surprise us that he would go and help Jairus, but he stops 
uh, his pursuit of Jairus to heal his daughter, which is a life-and-death situation. He stops right in the middle of that uh, to pay attention to this woman and to heal her. And, you know, the woman touches his hem, and, and she has faith that just that touch uh, could be enough to heal her. Uh, and he does. that. Just that touch heals her physically, but Jesus has much more in mind for her. And she's looking to just slip away unnoticed, uh, but Jesus won't let her. He stops her, and he talks with her, and... He he addresses her as daughter, and I think that's probably my favorite part of that narrative when he mm-hmm. says to her, you know, daughter, you know, that daughter, it just carries so much meaning. You know, she is mine. You are mine. This is an intimate, ongoing, committed relationship, one of being a daughter. And your faith has made you well. He commends her publicly for her faith. And then go in peace and be healed of your disease. And I think the healing there is, you know, it goes beyond just the physical, yes. what he does for her there. It's a healing, um, a relational healing and a spiritual healing that he has in mind for her. And I just think it's a beautiful account. Mm-hmm. And that the, the use of the word daughter implies some intimacy that she is not just yeah. seen by him, but known by him. What a beautiful choice of word to describe this woman who I'm certain feels that she is insignificant. And that is so common among women today that we feel insignificant. We're not seen and uh, certainly not known. And yet that's how Jesus yeah. approaches her. Another of the stories is the woman caught in adultery. Many mm. of us can relate to her because she is unworthy of uh, Christ's attention. And yet uh, he forgives her and he sets her free. Talk a little bit about this woman um, who is known to be guilty. She acknowledges her own guilt. And yet uh, Christ has a way of extending his love to her that changes everything. Yeah, you know, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, they holler in front of Jesus, and they uh, claim, you know, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And I think this is as much about the scribes and Pharisees wanting to trap Jesus mm-hmm. as it is their scorn of this woman. And so they kind of have this dual purpose. Um, they put Jesus on the spot here. And... He he doesn't really even engage them. He doesn't engage them in debate. He he stoops down, and the passage is very curious. It talks a lot about Jesus' uh, physical positions, his stooping and his standing, and uh, he stoops and he writes in the dirt. And there's quite a bit of debate about what he might have uh, written in the dirt. We don't exactly know, uh, but. Uh, you know, it's an action. I think that's that's fraught with meaning, and it's a it's a pretty strong nonverbal in his communication to the scribes and Pharisees, um, and that there he's kind of noticing their rejection of him. You know, in their accusation toward him, they're rejecting who he is, uh, and so finally he tells them, you know, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Uh, and so I think I see in that just him calling the self-righteous, which many of us can at many times be Mm -hmm. self-righteous, to this all-important exercise of self-examination. You know, you think you're so righteous. Um, You ought to examine yourselves. And and here now, it's the Pharisees' turn. Uh, they, They don't get into a debate with him. They just one by one walk away. And, and leave Jesus with the woman. And then it says that Jesus stands and looks her in the eye, and he calls her woman. Uh, and it's the same word that he uses for, uh, for Mary, his mother. 
And then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus' forgiveness, I love that it, it's, it's, a, it's a total forgiveness, and it's a forgiveness that necessitates transformation. You know, go and sin no more. You are, you're free. You're free from sin. Um, go and sin no more. And I think so many of us need to receive that forgiveness. You know, I think we all, we wrestle with forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that all of us have to engage with, I would say, almost on a daily basis. You know, whether we wrong someone or someone wrongs us, there's a giving and a taking and a receiving of, of forgiveness in our relationships. I think sometimes it's even easier to give it than it is to receive it. And I think uh, to receive the lavish and, and even shocking forgiveness that Jesus gives us, uh, is something that we, we most of us need to kind of consider. Yeah, I think when we are, have engaged in sin, we know the full weight of it. We feel the, yeah. the full impact of it. And we imagine that, you know, nobody who knows what I've done and the depth of yeah. my depravity could possibly forgive me. And yet Jesus, knowing her, knowing what she's not only been accused of, but what she's actually done, approaches her, which in and of itself is something that that wasn't done. I mean, it really says so much about um, who Jesus is and um, the fact that we are really forgiven. He does get it. You know, he gets us and he gets it and he extends his his love and grace. Uh, Anyway, it really is a remarkable thing when you think about it. If you've ever had an encounter with sin in your own life, you've got to appreciate what what this means. Yes. And I think we we try to deal with our guilt in so many other unhealthy ways. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, we, we feel the guilt, so we try to numb it, or we feel the guilt and we try to mask it, or we ignore it, or we condone it, and we explain it away, and, you know, we all know what it is to feel that guilt, and to just to bring it to the cross, to bring it to Jesus, and know true forgiveness, I think is something most of us uh, could experience. Mm. Well, that's what he offers. The book, once again, is titled Pierced and Embraced. It's such a lovely way of considering how Jesus extends his love uh, primarily to women in the book, but to all of us. Uh, and you offer seven life-changing encounters with the love of Christ. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for the book and for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate pleasure. it. Bye-bye. Uh, by Bye-bye. the way, her blog is, um, you can also find her uh, blog, and I just put the notes away. Um, thisoddhouse.org, thisoddhouse.org, if you want to follow more. The book is published by Moody, and you can find it where books are sold. We're going to take a break here at the top of the hour for news and traffic. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the president's deal with the Democrats on Harvey relief uh, aid and the debt limit. We'll talk about uh, Senator Menendez and what this might mean moving forward for the Senate. We'll talk about uh, much, much more. So stick around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Glad to have you with us. Well, President Trump struck a deal on, uh, well, today with Democrat leaders. Um, this was something of a surprise because the Republicans didn't want to give him what he wanted. Anyway, he struck a deal with the Democratic leaders to raise the federal debt ceiling and fund the government for the next, well, three months. While also providing Hurricane Harvey aid money, um, hours after House Speaker Paul Ryan um, blasted the deal, the plan, as unworkable and disgraceful. 
Well, the president meeting with congressional leaders from both parties effectively brushed off calls from the GOP leaders uh, for a um, longer term plan. They wanted six months, nine months. Those lawmakers had uh, pushed first for an 18 month debt limit uh, hike and then floated a six month plan. Um, But Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat out of New York, and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, Democrat out of California, held firm on calls for a three-month deal. Trump agreed. Deal done. Uh, We had a very good meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He actually said Nancy and Chuck, but he was speaking to reporters um, uh, aboard Air Force One. Uh, We agreed to a three-month extension on the debt ceiling, which uh, they consider to be uh, sacred, very important. Now, interestingly enough, as we've discussed here before, there's a, a growing laundry list of things that have to be done in the short term for members of Congress. This has now just been added to it since the extension only lasts for three months and they have to come up not just with another extension, presumably, although that's pretty much what they do. They're supposed to come up with a solution in three months. That's not likely. Well, the announcement was um, uh, was striking uh, considering just hours earlier, Paul Ryan warned uh, that such an agreement could put uh, Hurricane Harvey relief funds at risk. Uh, to play politics with the debt ceiling like Schumer and Pelosi apparently are doing, I don't think is a good idea, Ryan had said. Well, the House on Wednesday overwhelmingly approved an initial $8 billion, that's with a B, $8 billion in funding for Hurricane Harvey relief on a, um, a, f- a 419 to 3 vote. The plan all along was for the Senate to attach a debt ceiling hike to the bill and then send it back. But Ryan and other top Republicans objected to the Democrats' push uh, to only raise the debt ceiling for the next three months. Uh, yet following the Trump meeting, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell acknowledged that uh, they had all agreed to a three-month deal, saying uh, he would be uh, adding that to the Harvey list. Well, I'll be uh, supporting uh, supporting it, McConnell said. Will Schumer uh, call the arrangement a really good moment of uh, bipartisanship? Not everyone thinks so. Of course, bipartisanship doesn't always uh, please most members of Congress. This would not be an exception. Well, as Senator Robert Menendez prepares to face corruption charges, Republicans are confident and Democrats fearful that the taint of the week's long trial is going to snare other prominent Democrats in New Jersey and in Washington. The trial kicks off or rather kicked off today in New Jersey, where the 11 year incumbent senator is accused of using his office to try to assist and protect a longtime friend. Dr. Solomon Melgen, uh, in disputes with the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services. One high-profile Democrat already has been caught in the uh, backwash. Former Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, who retired last year, was fingered as trying to help Mr. Menendez, Senator Menendez, in his efforts to derail a federal probe of the uh, of the case. Well, who, um, you know, I got these new contact lenses. This is my... Um, Second week, and I'm having so much difficulty focusing. I, I'm having hard. I should have stopped, taken them out, put my readers on so I could actually read my own typing. But it's it's clear, and then it gets blurry. It's clear, it gets blurry. So I'm stumbling here. So please, please uh, forgive me. Anyway, um, when uh, rather who knows who else will be implicated? Uh, but it's clear now that the corruption extended beyond Menendez's office. That's a quote from Michael Ahrens, a spokesman for the Republican National Committee, who's only hoping that's the case. It's just a, a, a stunning that no Senate Democrat has uh, said Menendez should resign immediately if convicted. Well, Mr. Menendez has asked the judge to 
allow him to uh, to skip out on the trial so that he could be in Washington for the upcoming votes. The judge rejected that request, saying he is uh, no different from any other worker whose schedule is set by others, but who has to be in court uh, to face prosecutors. Well, in a detailed statement last week, those prosecutors outlined the case against Mr. Menendez, uh, whom they indicted in 2015 on accusations of asking uh, uh, roughly $1 million, or rather taking $1 million in gifts, including airplane flights, stays at lavish resorts, hotels frequented by Hollywood uh, all-stars or, and A-listers, such as George Clooney and Beyonce, in exchange for political favors uh, from uh, Melgen. Now, prosecutors say Mr. Menendez helped Melgen obtain visas for girlfriends from Brazil and Dominican Republic and Ukraine. It also said Mr. Menendez uh, used his office to try to shield his friend from accusations that he overbilled millions of dollars in Medicare payments. Well, we won't go into much more of the detail, but the process has begun and the expectation is there will be others who will be snagged into it, although I doubt there will be further indictments. Uh, The other thing is, if he is found guilty and has to step down, that would certainly change the uh, makeup of the Senate for the uh, for the Democrats. We'll keep an eye poised on uh, Menendez corruption case uh, that, again, could put other Democrats at legal risk, uh, sideline the senator for his uh, trial during a strategic period in Washington. Well, a federal appeals court um, received or rather revived Texas voter ID law on Tuesday, saying the state's updated version does enough to protect the right to vote for everyone in the state. Now, this has been a back and forth. The two to one decision rejects the findings of a lower court, which has said um, uh, that hmm, uh, blacks and Hispanics would disproportionately suffer by struggling to show ID when voting. Now, I think I've expressed my my thoughts on this a couple of times. On the one hand, the state seems to have bent over backwards to make sure everybody can get the ID, uh, that you don't have to pay for it. If you have some difficulty getting it, you can sign something and then, you know, make arrangements to get it later. But the scapegoat always seems to be um, blacks and Hispanics, that somehow blacks and Hispanics are incapable of somehow getting the identification needed to vote. Um, now, I, I recognize the efforts that were made historically to prevent minorities from voting. I'm fully aware of that history. Uh, this is not a reflection of that history, and I, it, it's frustrating to me. I mean, if you want to change the law, that's one thing. But don't suggest that black people, for example, are incapable of somehow securing the identification necessary in order to vote. It's a scapegoat. And, you know, let's say um, let's put something else in those uh, fill in the blanks which is a bit insulting to members of the particular groups that are mentioned. Anyway, in backing uh, the uh, uh, Texas, the court said that the state uh, accommodated voters by allowing those without uh, an ID to cast a ballot as long as they uh, swear under penalty of perjury that they are, in fact, legal voters. That, the court said, would solve the problem of uh, each of the 27 different voters who had said they uh, lacked uh, identification. Well, the judge said that with elections looming, it made sense to stick with the existing law rather than change things up. A temporary stay here while the court can consider the argument on the merits will minimize confusion among both voters and trained election officials. Judges uh, Jennifer Elrod and Jeremy Smith, uh, both appointed by GOP presidents, backed the Texas law. Now, writing in dissent, Judge James Graves and uh, Obama and Obama appointee said, Another appeals court uh, struck down a similar voter ID law in North Carolina last year, ruling that uh, the underlying law was intended to discriminate against minorities. So it was uh, unconstitutional no matter what. 
Um, Texas uh, had enacted one of the stiffer voter ID laws in the country, but Judge uh, Neva Gonzalez Ramos, an Obama appointee to the uh, district court, blocked it in 2014, finding Texas uh, intended to discriminate. Now, maybe there's evidence suggesting that Texas did intend to discriminate. Uh, the thing that's frustrating uh, and a bit maddening to me is to suggest that black people don't know how to get identification. Anyway, Texas added its new um, attestation uh, provision to try to solve her complaints. But late last month, she ruled the law was still too harsh. The appeals court Tuesday delivered a bit of a spanking to the judge, uh, Judge Ramos, saying that she went beyond the limited scope of what uh, she was supposed to be deciding on by looking at Texas updated changes. Well, the U.S. Justice Department, which uh, under President Obama had opposed Texas, uh, sided with the state now that the President Trump is in office. A Justice Department spokeswoman uh, cheered the decision on Tuesday, saying that preserving the integrity of the ballot is vital to our democracy. And the Fifth uh, Circuit uh, order allows Texas to continue to fulfill that duty at uh, at this as this case moves forward. The spokesperson said so that decision now reversed when we come back, we're going to talk about the Ninth Circuit that blocked a praying coach's push to get his job back at a high school. We'll tell you more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and I can see. I've taken my contact. I'm in that phase where you try them out and they haven't quite got the prescription right. And they keep telling me, oh, your eyes will adjust. Well, not so much. No. And I had um, LASIK surgery years ago and I actually see pretty well. I just thought I wanted a little help and then I wouldn't need reading glasses, but it hasn't worked out so far. We're still working on it, but I I have them on now. I can see. Well, the Supreme Court could be uh, the next stop for a high school football coach after a federal appeals court said a Washington state school district acted properly in firing him for praying in public after games. A three-judge panel of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last Wednesday that Joe Kennedy took advantage of his authority as a teacher and assistant coach at Bremerton High School by praying after games when he sometimes was joined by players and parents from opposing teams as well as his own when he was sometimes joined by players and parents from opposing teams as well as his own. Well, in doing so, the judge decided Kennedy acted to press his particular views upon impressionable and captive minds before him. Now, if he'd lit up a cigarette, no one would be complaining. But they went on to say by kneeling and praying on the 50-yard line immediately after games while in view of students and parents, Kennedy was spending, rather sending a message about what he values as a coach. Heaven forbid that he should send a message of what he values, what the school district considers appropriate behavior and what students should believe or how they ought to behave. Well, maybe those things were conveyed. Washington's Bremerton School District has no legal obligation to return Kennedy to the job he held from 2008 to 2015. The Associated Press reported uh, the court's two opinions uh, rather totaling more than 60 pages. Well, according to the Ninth Circuit, it is unconstitutional for a coach to make a sign of the cross or bow his head in prayer when a player gets hurt. That's a quote from Mike Barry, deputy general counsel to First Liberty Institute, a public interest law firm that specializes in religious liberty cases and represented Kennedy from a former Marine. We are deeply disappointed by the decision and will consider all options available to coach Kennedy as we continue to review the opinion. Barry said in a prepared statement. Well, the uh, the story of Kennedy we followed here since October of 2015 produced uh, uh, the Daily Signal produced a video that reported on the case last year. I just want the ability to go back out there and help these young men and also have my constitutional rights that I fought for in the Marine Corps for 20 years. Kennedy said in an interview 
um, uh, after filing the suit in August. Well, Judge Milan Smith, 75 years old, who is uh, was appointed by President George W. Bush, wrote the unanimous main opinion concurring where Judge Dorothy Nelson, uh, appointed by President Jimmy Carter, and Morgan Christian, appointed by President Obama, Smith uh, also wrote a separate opinion. Teachers and coaches don't get to pressure students to pray. Richard Katsky, legal director of the Washington, D.C.-based Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, said in the Seattle Times. The group had filed an amicus brief supporting the school district's decision to suspend Kennedy and not renew his contract in 2015. Both the school district and Kennedy cited the First Amendment in making their cases. June 12th uh, to the Ninth Circuit, the coach unsuccessfully had asked U.S. District Judge Ronald Layton to force the district to rehire him as the case proceeded. Well, banning all coaches... Uh, from praying individually in, in public just because they can they can uh, be seen is wrong. First Liberty President and CEO Kelly Shackelford said in a prepared statement, this is not the America contemplated by our Constitution. Both appealing to the nation's highest court, Kennedy's lawyers could ask for a rehearing or argument before the expanded number of Ninth Circuit judges. Uh, we'll see what happens next. David French, writing for the National Review, says this. Coach praise. Ninth Circuit says no. Blame Supreme Court conservatives. He points to a decision when five justices in 2006 restricted the free speech rights of public employees. In 2017, we see the consequence. Well, French writes, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled this week that the high school football coach, and by the way, it was last week, Joseph Kennedy had no First Amendment right to kneel and briefly pray at the 50-yard line after a football game, at least not when he's wearing school gear and not when parents and students can see what he does. He never asked anyone to join him. He never required any player to pray beside him. He wasn't skipping out on any mandatory job responsibility. He had no captive audience, yet still the court held that he had no First Amendment right to pray. Well, why not? It would be easy after decades of watching the Ninth Circuit in action to ascribe the outcome to classic judicial anti-religious bias. In fact, there was a concurring opinion in the case that absurdly argued that the school district would violate the Establishment Clause if it allowed its coach to publicly take a knee immediately after the game. One can only imagine the founders' hysterical laughter at the notion. The true culprit, however... David French goes on to say, wasn't the Ninth Circuit, it was the Supreme Court of the United States. No, actually, it was the conservative wing of the court. Yes, that's right, the conservatives. And then he goes on. In 2006, Justices Kennedy, Roberts, Alito, Thomas, and Scalia voted together in a case called Garcetti versus Cabalas to substantially restrict the free speech rights of public employees. Formerly, employees of federal, state, and local governments, including public high school football coaches, enjoyed freedom to speak on matters of public concern, so long as their speech didn't interfere with the government's effective and efficient fulfillment of its responsibilities to the, repu- to the public. Rather, The balancing test represented a speech-protective effort to provide the public with the benefits of free speech while still protecting the rights of the employer to manage the workplace. Well, under this classic test, the football coach wins easily unless the Ninth Circuit Court is overcome by anti-religious bias. All sides agree that his religious speech dealt with matters of public concern, and there is simply no credible argument that his short prayer interfered with the school district's ability to fulfill its responsibilities. It could only argue that the prayer violated the Establishment Clause, a perversion of classic First Amendment doctrine. With Garcetti, however, the world changed. The Supreme Court's holdings in that case was brutal and short. 
When public employees make statements pursuant to their official duties, the employees are not speaking as citizens for First Amendment purposes, and the Constitution does not insulate their communications from employer discipline, end quote. Well, let's put it in plain English. If an employer can prove that the public employee was speaking as part of his job, then the First Amendment flat out does not apply, no matter the public importance of his speech. That means the public employer has essentially purchased the free speech of its employees. And if you think that means that public workplaces are now blessed apolitical, um, think again. Essentially, Garcetti empowers taxpayer-supported government entities, especially schools, to become propaganda mills, relentlessly pushing state-approved views while simultaneously crushing any internal dissent. Do you ever wonder why schools are increasingly and uniformly woke? (laughs) Do you wonder why dissenting teachers tend to keep to themselves moving beyond schools? Are are you frustrated by uh, that bureaucracies appear impervious to public accountability and that it's difficult to expose government corruption? Well, you can partly blame Garcetti. That decision. Well, the government isn't Google. It's not Apple. It's not Exxon. No matter how large, powerful a private corporation gets, it cannot compel you to pay it money. It does not ultimately wield the sword to enforce its edicts. There is an immense public interest in the ability of public employees to act as whistleblowers, to express dissenting ideas, and to spur public discussion of consequential issues. Yet the Supreme Court now says on your own time only, or face the consequences. But when dealing with salaried employees who have open-ended job descriptions on your own time often means when you're so clearly separated from your employment that no one will listen. That's exactly what it meant for Coach Kennedy. Despite the fact that the game was over, that he wasn't exercising authority over any player, that he had no specific assigned task at the time of his prayer, the court held that his speech was part of his official duties. When duties are broadly written, duties are broadly construed, and speech is relegated to a time and place where it has minimal impact. Our governments do not suffer from too much accountability. They're not crippled by too much dissent. It does not damage a relentlessly secular public school establishment to have the occasional football coach take a knee after a game. Woke public school bureaucracies could benefit from intellectual diversity, and sometimes public employees need to blow the whistle on manifest wrongdoing. In fact, the government, including the Supreme Court, should view free speech as an asset to be cultivated, not a problem to be managed. I hope Coach Kennedy appeals. I hope he gives an otherwise solid conservative Supreme Court majority an opportunity to right one of its worst free speech wrongs. Public school teachers are are citizens, too, and they, like the students they teach, don't shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate or under the uh, decision we've been talking about, do they? We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, Nashville Statement. It's a Christian manifesto on human sexuality. It's uh, stirred up some controversy. We'll explain. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood released a list of 14 beliefs referred to as the Nashville Statement. 
Uh, on Tuesday morning, the statement says the evangelical coalition who signed it are responding to an increasingly post-Christian Western culture that thinks they can change God's design for humans. Well, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood convened a meeting of evangelical leaders, pastors, and scholars on Friday at the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's annual conference in Nashville. The coalition discussed and endorsed the Nashville statement. John Piper, the co-founder of the Council on Biblical Manhood, in womanhood call the Nashville statement in a news conference a Christian manifesto on human sexuality. He said it speaks with forthright clarity, biblical conviction, gospel compassion, cultural relevance, and practical helpfulness. It will prove to be, I believe, enormously helpful for thousands of pastors and leaders hoping to give wise, biblical, and gracious guidance to their people. Each of the Nashville statement's 14 beliefs include one sentiment the signer affirms and one they deny. They cover a range of topics from a prohibition on sex outside of marriage to the connection between biological logical sex and gender identity. Well, here in the preamble is what they write about the Nashville Statement, a coalition for biblical sexuality. They quote the Psalm 103, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And this is what they write again, quoting from the preamble. Evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition. As Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory and that his good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. It is, it is common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preferences. The pathway to full and lasting joy through God's good design for his creatures is thus replaced by the path of short-sighted alternatives that sooner or later ruin human life and dishonor God. This secular spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church. Will the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lose her biblical conviction, clarity and courage and blend into the spirit of the age? Or will she hold fast to the word of life, draw courage from Jesus and unashamedly proclaim his way as the way of life? Will she maintain her clear countercultural witness to a world that seems bent on ruin? We are persuaded, again, quoting from the preamble of the Nashville Statement, we are persuaded that faithfulness in our generation means declaring once again the true story of the world and our place in it, particularly as male and female. Christian scripture teaches that there is but one God who alone is creator and Lord of all. To him alone, every person owes glad-hearted thanksgiving, heartfelt praise, and total allegiance. This is the path not only of glorifying God, but of knowing ourselves. To forget our creator is to forget who we are, for he made us for himself, and we cannot know ourselves truly without truly knowing him who made us. We did not make ourselves, we are not our own, our true identity as male and female persons is given by God. It's not only foolish, but hopeless to try to make ourselves what God did not create us to be. And then in their final paragraph, we believe that God's design for his creation and his way of salvation serves to bring him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. God's good plan provides us with the greatest freedom. Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it in overwhelming measure. He is for us and not against us. Therefore, in the hope of serving Christ's church and witnessing publicly to the good purpose of God for human sexuality revealed in Christian scripture, we offer the following affirmations. And denials. And then there are a series of articles. Let me just share a couple of them with you to give you some idea of how um, 
how it's uh, designed. The first article is this. We affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union, one man and one woman, as husband and wife, and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. We deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is mere human contact rather than a covenant made before God. Another of the articles, I'll skip down to four, it's short. We affirm that div- that divinely ordained differences between male and female reflect God's original creation design and are meant for human good and human flourishing. We deny that such differences are a result of the fall or are a tragedy to be overcome. And I'll read one more. This is Article 7. We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purpose in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. We deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purpose in creation and redemption. And it goes on from there. There are 14 articles in uh, this document. And again, we're talking about the uh, Nashville uh, document and among the the signators, uh, let me just read some that might be familiar to you. Russell Moore, who's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, Robert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. John MacArthur, pastor, Grace Community Church, president, the Master Seminary and College. John Piper, as I mentioned earlier, J.I. Packer, Professor of Theology, Regent College. Tony Perkins, President of the Family Research Council. Francis Chan, Author, Pastor, We Are Church. Alistair Begg, Reverend Parkside Church. James Dobson, Founder of Focus on the Family. Ray, uh, or rather, Wayne Grudem, Research Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies at Phoenix Seminary. R.C. Sproul, Founder and Chairman of Ligonier Ministries. Uh, Marvin Olasky, Editor-in-Chief, World Magazine. Dennis Rainey, Founder and Former President of Family Life. Randy Alcorn, Director of the Eternal Perspective Ministries. Uh, David French, Senior Writer, National Review. Robert Gag- uh, Gagnon, Scholar and Author of the Biblical, of the Bible and Human uh, and Homosexual Practice. Forgive me. Richard Land, President of Southern Evangelical Seminary. H. Wayne House, Academic Dean and Distinguished Research Professor, uh, Faith International University. J.P. Moreland, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbert School of Theology, Biola University. Daryl Bach, Senior Professor, Dallas Theological Seminary. It goes on from there um, with all of the signatories. Now, this has become quite controversial, as one might expect. And in response, writing for the Washington Post, Robert, or rather, Albert Moeller says this. This past week, I was part of an effort that put America's theolo- uh, theolo- excuse me, theological and moral fault line fully in view. I was a signer of something called the Nashville Statement, a document adopted by a group of evangelical Christians seeking to affirm traditional Christian values on sexuality. Within hours, the vitriol in response to our document showed why such clarification is necessary. One of the most intense lines of criticism was that we, signers of the document, dismiss the pain and suffering of those who live outside those historic biblical sexual norms, that we weren't acknowledging the rejection they feel in the church and we're making their sins appear more significant than our own. To be clear, Christians understand the brokenness of the world. We signers know ourselves, like all humanity, to be broken by sin. We have no right to face the world from a, a claim of moral superiority. We know and confess that Christians have often failed to speak the truth in love. In releasing the Nashville Statement, we, in fact, are acting out of love and concern for, uh, for people who are increasingly confused about what God has clarified in Holy Scripture. Evangelical Christians believe that God has spoken in the Bible and that obedience to what he has spoken is both true and essential for human wholeness, freedom, and fulfillment. 
for human flourishing. We fully understand that our culture is increasingly influenced by the promise that human flourishing can come by what is styled as sexual liberation and overthrowing the historic Christianity's witness of God's purpose in making us as sexual beings, even making us male and female. The statement was carefully written. Love of neighbor requires us to speak clearly and very specifically to the truths affirmed and the errors denied in the document. It would be much easier to be quiet, to let the moral revolution proceed unanswered, and to seek some kind of refuge in silence and ambiguity, as so many of us do. That's an editorial comment. For the sake of same-sex attracted people and others, we did not believe we could remain silent or unclear and be faithful. The backlash to the document shows why it is so needed. While the Christian church has held to a normative understanding of biblical sexuality for two millennia, we now face challenges to biblical teaching that requires an unprecedented level of specificity. If it affirmed that um, what would have been universally acknowledged as the historic Christian faith without question or controversy until just the last several years. We understand that we live in an increasingly post-Christian world and that a vast revolution in sexual morality is now fundamentally reshaping the landscape. Churches and pastors, Christian institutions, and individual Christians are now under intense pressure to adopt this new sexual morality along with its redefinition of marriage and gender. The Nashville Statement, like many other doctrinal declarations common to Christian history, seeks to summarize, clarify, and affirm what Holy Scripture reveals. In this case, we find ourselves clarifying what no previous generation of Christians has been called upon to clarify. We must now clarify and specify what the Bible teaches about human sexuality, marriage, and what it means to be made male and female. The Nashville Statement affirms God's design for marriage as uh, covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman. Those are the very purposes of marriage affirmed, for example, in the historic book of Common Prayer. Uh, Chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage are affirmed as the clear teaching of the Bible. We deny that God designed marriage uh, to be a homosexual, uh, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. The Christian church in all of its major branches has joined in this denial for 2,000 years. We affirm that God created Adam and Eve as the first human beings, as the statement says, and he goes on from there. And I don't have time to uh, finish it, but this appeared in the Washington Post on September the 3rd. Again, Albert Moeller responding to the backlash in the Washington Post to the Nashville statement. Now, all of this can be uh, uh, downloaded online as uh, it, it is designed to be primarily helpful to the church and to those who are leaders in the church to outline in a very simple, understandable, and clear way what the Bible teaches. Um, we'll uh, try to talk with someone who is a signator at some point in the uh, future, but I did want to bring this to your attention. If you've heard something of the controversy to let you know precisely what it is, what it was intended to be and do, and uh, let you know that you can um, Google the Nashville statement for more information. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Alex McFarland. He's written an op-ed on the casualties of war. And he makes the uh, the point that for, for too many millennials, uh, God and country are non-entities. We'll give him an opportunity to explain what he means by that and what the implications are of such a statement. Uh, he'll join us uh, tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, uh, assuming that uh, there's no breaking news, we're going to lighten up and have a bit of a uh, fun afternoon. And I'm looking forward to that. You know, I've, I'm looking um, out over the parking lot here where KPDQ's office is located. Um, and today it looks a lot less smoky than it did the day before. But as I looked out uh, earlier, it occurred to me we have had a very 
challenging and difficult uh, nine months of 2017. It began with the election of Donald Trump, and that uh, created a sort of mass hysteria uh, that has not subsided since the, the inauguration. And we have seen a, a divisiveness in our country, division among groups that would otherwise uh, perhaps stand in solidarity with one another. We've seen all kinds of violence being expressed and so on. Um, it's just been a very uh, difficult season. Then we entered into the summer months and we had, of course, Hurricane Harvey. We're now witnessing Hurricane um, Irma, the Chatco Bar fires here in eastern Oregon and the Eagle Creek fire a bit closer to home here in um, uh, in this part of the state where uh, homes are being evacuated in Corbett and uh, Troutdale is on alert. We don't know whether or not uh, Multnomah Falls and the historic uh, facility there is going to be um, destroyed or damaged in any way. Uh, and it just occurred to me, we're already in September. The uh, The end of the year is not that far off. And it's been a really challenging and difficult season for our country. And I know when our country is struggling, that means our communities are also struggling. And perhaps that has uh, been reflected in uh, our relationships with, uh, with people uh, closer to home. It's just been a, a challenging year. And uh, it's also been an opportunity for us uh, to perhaps clarify our role as followers of Christ and what what should my response be in light of events that take place all around me. Now, I know we all have opinions on all kinds of things. We have priorities and things that are more important to us than other things. But ultimately, when you uh, when you flatten it all out, the one thing that matters most is the fact that we are followers of Jesus. We are ambassadors of Christ and we have something to offer the world. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, news headlines and information we've gathered, what we've Googled or what Siri has told us. Um, but we are ambassadors of Christ. We carry his dispatches. We carry his message into the world. And how we do that in a, a, a meaningful, um, constructive way that uh, that shows fidelity with the scriptures is the challenge of every generation and certainly the challenge of ours as well. And that's what we're uh, what we're faced with. Uh, when there's division over the subject of race or whether um, or not the laws should stand uh, with regard to immigration and how they should be developed and which political party has a message that we can embrace. All of those things matter, but they matter less than whether or not we are conducting ourselves in a way that's honoring to Christ and is um, has the potential to edify uh, the people. Speaking the truth in love, standing firm on truth, and it's becoming more difficult. Now, we shouldn't, of course, be surprised because Jesus himself said, in this world, you might know some tribulation. It may come, it may. He said, it, you will know tribulation. But he also said, I've overcome the world. So we can hold firm, hold fast to what Jesus told us about himself, uh, that he, by his Holy Spirit, has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, that we have what we need in order to stand, the wisdom we need and how we speak. If we're opening God's word, if we're spending time in prayer, we can be equipped uh, to be an answer to some of the questions that uh, the culture is asking, whether that is just uh, simply speaking up and and uh, sharing your testimony in a group of women having coffee over um, over lunch or uh, if you're in an, an, a boardroom or you're in front of a large group, whatever the situation is, if we just commit ourselves to speaking the truth in love, to honoring, honoring Christ and the commitment that we've made uh, to him because of the the gift that he has given to us, I think we're going to fare fairly well. And along the way, we can help to relieve some of the tremendous stress and fear that has gripped um, our nation. And that's uh, gripped our state and that's gripped our communities 
and perhaps our, our families and other ways we associate with one another. So as we stand here at um, September, looking back uh, from January up to the present and look ahead to the December that's coming, um, it, it's likely to be a very challenging season in the days ahead. We need to be generous. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be praying. We need to be in God's word. In fact, I'm so looking forward uh, to Bible study fellowship that's uh, resuming next Tuesday for me. And I know for different times and locations for lots of other people, but I hope you're spending time in, in God's word. Sometimes it's, uh, we get so wrapped up in what's going on around us and we're, it's right for us to be aware of the world around us, but to put things into perspective and to get our marching orders, it's important that we spend adequate time in, uh, in God's word. So I'm looking forward to doing that corporately with other women from all around the metro area as we study the book of um, the book of Romans. And by the way, if you're interested in Bible study fellowship, let me encourage you to go to their website. I know there are other Bible studies that also begin in the fall, usually after uh, the first week of school. And uh, I would encourage you to, to get together with other believers around God's word, spend some time in prayer together and studying the scriptures and talking about what God's word has to say to us, because he does not intend for us to be flailing around, to be fearful and overwhelmed. It, it can be very easy to fall into that, but he intends for us to be at peace, and that's a, a peace that surpasses our own understanding. He intends for us to stand firm, to know our foundation so that we are not, uh, we're not wavering, we're not tossed here and there by every wind and uh, doctrine or event or every headline. Um, but they are, we're men and women who are stable in our relationship with Christ and are able to offer refuge um, to the world. So I hope we'll take our, our faith seriously in the months ahead because it's been a, a challenging season. And I think that uh, that gives us a, some idea of what uh, what to expect in the days ahead. We know, for example, in North Korea, we don't know what the future holds with regard to how we will relate uh, to that country from a military standpoint, what the other nations are going to do. But we do know that we can trust in God for our future, that he has got our back as followers of Christ. And um, we don't want to miss this opportunity that he's given us uh, to speak up and to speak the truth in love, not to win the argument, not to win the day, but to simply share our testimony and speak the truth in love. So I hope you'll join me in spending time on your knees, spending time in God's word and being ready uh, when he uh, chooses to use us. All right. Once again, on uh, Thursday, we're going to talk with Alex McFarland. He wrote an op-ed on the casualties of war. It's a war of a different kind, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.